This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. Today, we focus on defense. I'm Mimi Gerges. The DOD's lab and testing infrastructure is confronting a shortfall of $5 billion. Defense News reports that a new innovation steering group is working to identify areas that need priority funding. That group is led by Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering Heidi Hsu, who is reviewing infrastructure needs across the department. The steering group is also looking to identify budgets and contract processes for different Pentagon organizations. Military officials have announced that an additional 100 active-duty military personnel will be available to support hospitals dealing with the surge of COVID cases across the country. The deployment of those military medical teams are part of a whole-of-government approach to combating the pandemic. Hundreds of troops have already been deployed to help areas who are disproportionately affected by a rise of COVID cases. Approximately 3,000 employees at the Department of Veterans Affairs are not vaccinated against COVID. That number accounts for less than 1% of the total workforce at the VA. Despite not complying with the VA's mandate, no one at the department has faced termination. The deadline for VA employees to get vaccinated was October 8th for healthcare workers and November 22nd for all others. The January 6th attack on the Capitol and other attacks have raised questions as to why current and former military members would associate with extremist movements. A new report outlines how the Defense Department can combat domestic extremism among service members. Marek Posard is a military sociologist at the RAND Corporation. Marek, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So domestic extremism is a problem across the board. How does extremism within the military impact the institution as far as readiness and effectiveness? Well, uh, these extremist groups tend to demand the time and attention of service members, which is best spent focusing on their mission within the military. And the military is a large employer of young adults. And so these are impressionable, impressionable young individuals, younger individuals, that can potentially get distracted and get looped into these types of organizations that can lead to some very terrible outcomes that was like we saw on January 6th. And you've created a framework to uh, combat extremism in the military. And you say that the first step is to recognize and scope the problem of extremism. Doesn't there need to be a standard definition of what extremism is? So the standard definition is difficult to to construct for many different reasons, one of which is the fact that extremist groups by nature are extreme and volatile, and so they tend to rise and fall relatively quickly, and they tend to break away and splinter. So having one definition may not necessarily always encompass the wide range of types of extremist activities that might emerge. But what can be done is Uh, defining some common features, which I think the DOD policy has already done, and then in turn trying to understand the spectrum of these activities and then guiding commanders to try to spot these types of signals earlier rather than later so one can intervene before we see activities like we saw on January 6th. So you recommend leveraging existing support programs for those at risk of joining extremist groups. What are those existing programs within the, the DOD, and do you think it's enough? 
Well, I think it, there is a wide range of programs, chaplains, mental health counselors, um, various types of commanders um, that can be leveraged to address these issues. Now, I don't think it's that it's not enough. I just wonder, and I question if it's necessarily connected in a way that can best support commanders when they spot these early signs. Uh, the difficult thing is that extremism runs along a continuum. It's not black or white. It's not a yes or no. It's not a dichotomous variable. And so detecting those early signs when it doesn't necessarily rise to the level of a policy violation or it leads to violence, but it could in the future is very, very difficult. The policy relies on commanders to adjudicate. And the more of these services that are available that can advise those commanders, the easier it's gonna be for them to try to get individuals help before it leads to situations that's not gonna be necessarily productive for the individual, for the military or the country as a whole. And, and as you say, it's, it's very difficult for commanders to do this. That's the current DOD policy is that this is all on them. So the, the next steps that you've got in your framework is to intervene when observing extremism and then measuring the trends. Be more specific about that. What should military leaders be actually doing to implement that? So the issue with intervention really is that you don't want to necessarily go to one extreme or the other. You don't want to have benign neglect, but you also don't want to necessarily involve law enforcement right away if there's just early signs or someone's expressing beliefs that might be concerning, but they don't necessarily are tied to a particularly, particular extremist movement. And so the idea here is that can a commander potentially route an individual who might have some questionable beliefs that they're expressing that might be necessarily affecting them, their personal life or their work life, can they route those individuals into potentially counseling services? Can they route those individuals to chaplains? Can they route those individuals to various mental health providers or other types of support services to try to basically sort out some of these problems that they might be having in their life before they get sucked into extremist activity? On top of that, I think it's important to keep in mind that extremist groups tend to target individuals who have potholes in their life. And what you wanna do is try to fill those potholes before individuals get sucked into these activities. Now, in terms of measurement, what's gonna be important to, is to assess how well some of these programs might be working and where you might wanna refine or retool them going forward to support individuals, um, our service members. This isn't the first time the military has had to deal with these types of issues. There has been jihadist extremism within the military. How have military leaders confronted the problem in the past, and is there anything they can learn from that? Well, we've seen, you're right, we've seen these, these problems time and time again. We, we saw issues surrounding white nationalism in the 80s as well. We saw issues regarding um, Islamic extremism uh, after 9-11 that were popping up, and now we're seeing more um, um, extremist types of activities popping up again, particularly as it relates to nationalism, and in some cases it's racialized extremism. And so what I think is important to keep in mind is that um, this is evolving and that each time these issues pop up, what the military leadership tends to do is try to refine its policy, clarify it, but also make sure you have interventions that work. And I think we're at a really good time right now to, to begin taking a step back and saying what interventions can work and what, what doesn't work. Because we wanna make sure that we have a refined tool that can really nip this in the bud instead of just trying to wait and be passive. And I think military leadership is, is taking a more active role lately. And you, you touched on this before, but I wanna go back to kind of the balance of service members' rights and freedoms as American citizens. Um, with the push to combat extremism in the military. How do, you, how do you thread that needle? I mean, I think it's a work in progress, to say the least. Um, service members have the right 
to believe in what they want to believe in, they don't necessarily have the right to express that, particularly when those expressions might, expressions of beliefs might interfere with military effectiveness or good order and discipline. And I think that's kind of the key point to keep in mind with this extremist policy is if you want to believe in something on your own time and not express it, that's one thing. But the minute you start talking about this or active involvement with various extremist groups, that can raise questions about good order and discipline or if it's service discrediting. And in general, it does it affect the military's capacity to achieve its mission. And I think the commanders right now are the ones who are largely on the ground adjudicating this. It's a very murky area and the more support we can give them, the better they're gonna be able to make those decisions. All right, well, Mar Mark, we appreciate your work on this. Thank you very much for being on the program. Thank you. Coming next, some think that employing cyber operations could de-escalate crises but it might be the opposite. Still ahead on Government Matters, how cyber operations could actually escalate a military crisis. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Some policymakers could consider employing cyber operations to de-escalate crises. But those intentions could actually result in the opposite effect and escalate the situation. That's according to a report by Michael Fisher-Keller. He's a research staff member at the Institute for Defense Analyses. Michael, welcome to the program. Thank you. Delighted to be here. So there is this assumption that in a military crisis between nuclear armed states that cyber operations can be used as an off-ramp to de-escalate the situation. Do you agree with that? I, I do not. Um, there have been claims made to that effect, um, but in the research paper um, that I did for the Institute for Defense Analyses and for the Atlantic Council, I actually make an argument that just the opposite could be true, that reversible cyber operations in particular may signal a lack of willingness to commit to escalating the situation uh, that encourages the adversary to back down. So you use the word reversible, and cyber operations are reversible. You can kind of, you know, you can't unbomb a building, but you can put things back that you've, you know, attacked cyber-wise. Isn't that a good thing, though, that, that you can reverse the damage? Well, that seems to be the conventional wisdom, uh, which was the motivation for my uh, exploring the wisdom. Uh, and I was able to, to track the original argument back to a 2019 Atlantic Council paper that made these claims and uh, what I discovered was that these claims were actually not supported by the evidence that, that the authors uh, proposed in that paper. And so that led me to then explore really what is, what is the value of reversible cyber operations, in particular what's their value in an escalation management uh, situation. Because you're correct uh, that they are, you would think there is value in reversibility and there may be. But my question is, is there value and reversibility in a crisis escalation management strategy? And my conclusion is no, there is not, because it demonstrates a lack of commitment. How did, what does that mean, a lack of commitment? And, and what's the kind of the evidence that you're looking at? Because we've never had this kind of escalated crisis between nuclear armed states. That's an excellent point. We, we never have. Uh, which makes it potentially all the more dangerous to use it as an instrument of escalation management because great powers aren't familiar with this tool and there are uh, reasons to believe that uh, cyber operations could lead to inadvertent escalation, could lead to accidental escalation, uh, and therefore are perhaps more dangerous than people think that they uh, are right now. 
But why are they more dangerous than, say, you know, kinetic action, right? Why, why would they lead to inadvertent escalation, whereas, you know, dropping bombs wouldn't? Great powers have a long history of uh, crisis management. And, and dealing with militarized crises. And over the course of that history, uh, we have tended to use diplomatic instruments, economic instruments, and non-cyber military instruments. And, and so states understand what the costs are. They understand what the risks are associated with those. And that familiarity makes them more valuable and more prudent and dependable instruments of crisis management. Cyber operations also tend to have a different psychological impact. Can you talk about that and how that plays into the possibility of escalation? They, they do. And one of the studies uh, that I cite in, in one of my essays actually was uh, a simulation where participants got an opportunity to use cyber uh, operations in a militarized crisis scenario, and they chose not to. And when interviewed afterwards, they said that they, they felt that cyber had a different feel, that uh, th there's an unknowability about it, um, that there are risks inherent in it that we don't yet understand. Again, back to the lack of familiarity argument. And uh, so again, probably not the most prudent choice for crisis escalation management. Just because it's scarier. We, we don't really know what could happen. Well, it, it, the terms that I would use are it's unpredictable and it, it introduces uncertainties. Um, so. Uh, a particularly important uncertainty is that states right now have a very limited set of mutually agreed upon understandings of what is acceptable and unacceptable behavior in cyberspace. So during a crisis, a state may employ a cyber operation that it feels is relatively benign, but the other state may feel that it's actually very aggressive. And because of that lack of mutual understanding, uh, we are, it introduces a level of uncertainty, and uncertainty in a crisis situation is never a good thing. So what should military and civilian leaders be thinking about in their, um, in, in an escalating crisis if they start thinking about using a cyber attack? Well, they have to understand that there are the attendant risks, uh, right? And I mentioned there's inadvertent uh, escalation because of a lack of mutual understanding on what's acceptable and not. There's potentially accidental escalation because of the interconnectedness and the technical complexity of targets. There is, if they're considering a, a reversible cyber operation, there is the possibility that it uh, signals a lack of commitment, which would uh, invite escalation to venturism on the part of the opponent. So, so I, it's important for me to caveat, we are talking about the use of cyber as in supporting an escalation management strategy in a militarized crisis. This is not a bad news story for cyber. Right? Cyber has unique strategic value in day-to-day -day competitions short of militarized crises and armed conflict. And it also has unique novel strategic value in armed conflict itself. So my research focuses on that middle slice. How valuable is it in supporting an escalation management strategy in a militarized crisis? Can it be used as a de-escalation tool if used properly? Uh, today I would say no. Uh, what would have to happen for it to be useful or valuable in that way is it either the core dynamics of crisis escalation uh, would have to change, and that's unlikely. They, they've been the same for decades, if not millennia. Or the core features of cyberspace itself and, and the technical complexity of targets and interconnectedness would have to change. And I don't see that changing anytime soon either. All right. Well, Michael, thank you very much for being on the program. Thank you so much. Coming next, does the defense budget process need an overhaul? 
Still ahead on Government Matters, a new commission is tasked with modernizing how the DOD gets its yearly funding. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. As part of the fiscal 22 defense budget, Congress will review how the Pentagon requests and receives its annual funding. The review group is called the Commission on Planning, Programming, Budgeting and Execution Reform. Ron Marks is a former CIA official and former intelligence advisor to two Senate majority leaders. Ron, welcome to the program. Delighted to be here. Thank you. Mimi. Nice to see you. So the current budgeting process has um, it was created by Defense Secretary Robert McNamara in 1961. How could we possibly be using something that old? Uh, you know, every once in a while you, you look at these things and they get so caught in the system and they're such a part of a system that everybody gets used to. Uh, I, I've been teaching this system, believe it or not, on and off for about 15 years where I come in and try to explain it all. And it wasn't illogical from, from that 1950s and 60s approach. It's systems analysis, which is a $10 term for sort of picking this thing apart and trying to look at each level and how it affects each other. The problem is that the bureaucracy is sort of layered into each one of these things. So you go from a national security strategy from the president, you have a national defense strategy based on that, which is you know how we're going to arrange the Pentagon's stuff to support the president. And then you go in from that planning level to the programming level in the budget, which is you know what programs are we going to do that are going to support this? Uh, plan for the defense which supports the president. And by the way, how are we going to get the money for this thing? So that's the good news, and, and that, but even that takes a couple of years. And then you go up to the Congress because the President's State of the Union is essentially the budget. And he's going up there and saying, look, this is what I want. And they don't have to take it. Uh, they can look at it, they the Congress, and just say, I can remember one point in time the Speaker of the House basically said this is dead on arrival. You know, what's the thinking behind making it such a long and arduous process? Well, it's big. I mean, it's huge when it's all said and done. And I mean, in the in the McNamara days, I think the budget was about eight percent of GDP. Right now, it's I think three point seven percent. It's seven hundred and sixty billion dollars. I mean, it's the size of a of a of a country uh, in terms of its overall you know the overall absolute numbers. And in terms of companies in the U.S., I think only Amazon and Walmart come close at about six hundred billion. So it's huge stuff. So it's not illogical for them to want to ask the questions. And you know, sort of balance off resources and, and, and see again what supports and doesn't support. The problem is it's just so bloody long. So by the time you make a decision in year, say two years ago, you write it up this year, you send it up to the Hill, and you may not spend it until next year. And as you know with the CR we've got right now, that spending will get pushed now into, well, we're into 23. Well, you know, I, I won't ask you to comment on China's defense budgeting process. But I'm going to guess it's not that long and not that complicated. They have their own headaches with it because they've got a lot more state-owned companies involved with it. But yeah, it goes a lot faster. I, you know, it's the old story. I mean, we we are supposedly with a democracy, not supposedly with a democracy. It's supposed to be a little slower. We have to think about it. This is the people's money we're spending. When you have a centralized government, by and large, the decisions tend to get made a little more quickly. 
they have their five-year plans as well, but certainly in terms of acquisition, certainly in terms of pushing the money through when they need it you know, much more quickly than we can. So what's this reform committee going to be looking for? What are they What are they trying to do? Well, I think we're going to take a fairly careful look at the whole process itself, from the planning stage through the programming and budgeting, execution to some extent, but they, they really need to take a look at sort of who's layered into this thing. You've got a lot of different layers. You know, there's some poor guy like me who is sitting down the front lines who think that doing their job is the right thing to do, and they don't realize that half that job is trying to figure out where their budget's going to come from for the next couple of years. So you've got that layer. You've got the layer above them. There's another layer. Say, for instance, it goes from, you know, some poor guy at uh, at some naval air station somewhere, uh, up through the Navy, up through the Pentagon, up to Office of Management and Budget, then over to the Hill. Armed Services reviews it. The Appropriations Committees, by the way, who actually have the money, review it. They come up with something, and then you turn around at the end, and it goes back to the management and budget, and you end up with my favorite game from the Price is Right, Plinko, which is that the butters sort of eventually come down to you through that system, and then you spend it. But you're also a couple of years down the road from the initial request. You're involved with trying to balance off when the monies are going to come in. And you're dealing with contractors, by the way, who are also sitting there waiting in the middle of the CR right now. There are no new spending. So if I'm a contractor and I've got a contract coming, what do I do? Do I hang on to the people? Do I wait for these guys to get through? How do I balance off my resources? So it's a bit of a tangled mess. And what they're trying to do is take a look at how this process works. And by the way, the, the ignorance of this process, and, and I don't mean people are stupid. I mean, they just don't know about this process until they get involved with it is profound. So trying to get people educated, trying to get them to understand, try to get an acquisition process through this all as well. That's what they need to review. They're not going to be able to touch the Hill. The Hill, God love them, have their own system and they never listen to anybody. They've got our authorization appropriations committees and that's not going away. So it's the internal process of the Pentagon I think that they need to focus on. Well, we'll see what happens and we'll see when the continuing resolution uh, finally gets resolved. <laughs> Thank you, Ron. You're welcome. Thank you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And listen to our Government Matters podcast, available on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. You can also find every episode on our website. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, 
include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service? It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right, well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi, nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.